And so it really, it just took me coming up with a concept and saying to these guys, look, if we could do this, what would you agree to doing a one-hour movie your way um, and do uh, commit to that? Because we'd have to go in, if we're offering the Masters of Horror series, the pitch is these are the guys who would be a part of it. And so, yeah, it came out of the dinners, and then the idea of it actually becoming real came out of a concept that I had put together and then the pitch to, to the uh, studios. And each of the places we went to, we went to three places with the pitch. All three of them said yes, but Anchor Bay said, yes, when can we start? Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. Today we are sitting down with a filmmaker who is not only a master of horror himself, but also created the brand and the TV series. A director of some of the genre's best adaptations and miniseries, he is a true lover of the strange and uncanny, and one of the most beloved personalities in horror. Our guest today is the one and only Mick Garris. Anyone with even a passing interest in horror knows Mick from his classic miniseries adaptation, our frequent collaborator Stephen King's The Stand, or the faithful to the text but also controversial The Shining. And for the more devoted horror lovers, Mick Garris is pretty much royalty. Of course, Mick is also well known for both his long white mane and his reputation for being one of the nicest people in show business, which he is. But when you look at Mick's body of work a little more closely, you will also see the side of Mick that is decidedly fierce. This is the man that made a sequel to Psycho with an unconvinced Anthony Perkins, and critics who two sequels later were still ready to pounce on any filmmaker who dared to try and follow up one of Hitchcock's most iconic films. Who tackled one of Stephen King's most batshit crazy stories about a mother and son cat people that steal people's essence and also share a bed. Side note, I love sleepwalkers. Who was equal parts brave and insane enough to tackle an independently made version of King's epic, The Stand, and against all odds, absolutely nail it and create a monster hit and who ignored the naysayers when it came to doing a miniseries of King's iconic The Shining, because both he and King felt that the legendary Stanley Kubrick had not really done justice to King's book. So yes, Mick Garris is a lovely guy, but don't mistake that for someone who is meek and mild. Mick has succeeded not just on talent and awesome hair, but because he works hard and takes chances. Mick delves into the beginnings of Masters of Horror, both the dinners and the series, the massive amount of shit he got from some fans for daring to touch The Shining, his beginnings interviewing his own heroes like Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling, and showing a little man flesh for a change in the stand. Mick is also the host of one of the greatest genre podcasts, Postmortem, so if you're not familiar with it, and I'm guessing if you're listening to SYG, you probably are, make sure to check it out and then carve out a bunch of time because you will get hooked. Spill Your Guts is proud to present a conversation with master of horror, Mick Garris. Hey, Mick. Hey, Kevin. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Very well. Great I, to meet you. Oh, great to see you. It's I. It's funny because 
this is the first time I've had someone on the show who has such a notable podcast of their own that I'm a fan of. So I was I was sort of joking with my husband before I got. I was like, this is a little more daunting than usual because this is like a podcast maestro in himself. So um Oh Hardway, it's all conversation. <laughs> it's all just conversation. It's funny because that's always my approach to this podcast as people will say, so you're an interviewer. I was like, I don't really interview people. We just chat and if you know and I, you know, you prepare and you make sure you have your stuff, but you know, I've noticed that 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 style is very prevalent in, in your approach on your show is just, you know, it's a conversation with people and um, it's not that sort of not there's anything wrong with it. But I, the interview approach of it stayed for my style. Yeah, I uh, I used to make up a long list of questions, but I find I would rarely use them or I would have them in the back of my head and not need to reference them. Yeah, but it also kind of makes your conversations structured and it doesn't allow for the tributaries that sometimes lead to the most inf interesting information. And you've been conducting interviews or, or discussions as it were with, with filmmakers and actors and stuff, both in the genre and out for, for a very long time. So. Um, yeah. Since the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so Actually it, since the sixties when I was, wow. I think I was 16 years old when I interviewed Ray Bradbury, who was my first interview. <laughs> what a first interview. <laughs> Yeah, and then my second one was Rod Serling the same year. I, I yeah, well, it's in the in the 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 book, um, Abby's book, Master of Horror. It's called right. Yes, Master of Horror, which which all y'all gotta read. It's a wonderful book. It's all about mix. Yes, you must read that. Yeah, this is our this <laughs> it's is so our plug. embarrassing. It's so embarrassing that there's a book about me. You know, well, it really you know, is. I yeah, for you because you're like as the book says over and over again, and is quite correct, a very nice, modest person. But it's also like, you deserve it. It's not like it's a book that, where I'm like, well, this is padded out. <laughs> There's lots to say in it. Yeah, but I'm not Toby Hooper. I'm not John Carpenter. I'm not Steven Spielberg. And, no, you you're know, Mick Harris. You're the ambassador of horror. Every horror fan <laughs> looks to you as this ambassador for, because it's not just, you're not just a director. You're all of this. You're the director, the writer, the producer, the the interviewer, the, you know, the guy they write books. So, I mean, come on, it's great. Well, I've been lucky enough to work within uh, not just this industry, but this genre since, you know, for a long time, you know, I got a relatively late start in my mid thirties when I first started writing for amazing stories. But since then, you know, it's just, it's not just been my love and passion, but it's been my vocation. Yeah. Do you think that? You know, some people uh, that, that make genre films or have made genre films, like even if it's a, f a couple, sometimes kind of get that thing of like you can get you can tell they sort of feel stuck or confined by working within the genre. But I've never gotten that impression from you. Are you would you say that you've ever felt limited by being kind of the master for this sort of ambassador for the genre? Well, I've definitely been limited in the opportunities that have been available to me, but I also love the genre. <laughs> And yes, there's a lot of crap in our genre, but there's a lot of crap in every genre. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, I think the best movies are usually within our genre because they're not only great drama, but they also touch on really personal fears and things that affect us in, in visceral ways and not just in light entertainment form. You know, people within our genre... The fans of the genre want to own the movies. They know who the writers and directors are. 
fans of comedies and romantic comedies and dramas, the mainstream moviegoer, movie fan, they don't care who made the movies, they care about who stars in the movies. And it's a very different world within the, the horror genre and fandom and, and from the people who, who make them as well. Yeah, it's 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 a, a story I'm fond of of telling people when they ask me sort of about how I got into horror and all that. But there's I have this this very clear memory of being like eight or nine years old and, and, and being surrounded by my friends who are all comparing notes on their favorite action stars, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Stallone and these kind of people. And one of my friends said, Well, you're Kevin, you're a big movie guy. Like who who do you think is the, the best actor? And I said, probably Donald Pleasance. And they were all like, Who? <laughs> like, and I just think that's so indicative of kind of the mind of horror kids, you know what I mean? Is you have these people that you love, but they're usually not the people that every other kid in your school is going to be talking about. And there's that yeah, kind of. And you talk about, you talk about Carpenter as much as you talk about uh, any of the stars, you know? That's right. That's right. And I, and, and at that age, you know, I was very enamored with those guys, particularly Carpenter. Um, were there any filmmakers, actors, or directors that you were that you were sort of taken with as a youngster? Well, the first the first crush I had on a creator was with Ray Bradbury's writing. I read everything that he wrote by the time I was twelve years old, and and just loved it. But Alfred Hitchcock, I loved, and I loved the Universal monsters. Those were my introduction. Those were what led me into discovering monsters. Uh, you know, I talk about uh, Son of Kong being the first movie I, I remember seeing, certainly the first genre movie I ever saw. But I also was brought up on the Twilight Zone. And, you know, the, Rod Serling was hugely important in, in my life. And yeah, there were plenty. And of course, Vincent Price and Vincent Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney yeah. Jr. And those were the people that I grew up with in childhood. And then, you know, a lot of us who are into the horror genre never really end our childhood, which is <laughs> yeah. a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's a great thing because, you know, we, we mature in the ways that we need to mature, but we still maintain that fascination with the uncanny and the unbelievable and, and what may or might not be out there, whether you believe in it or not it's a fascination with stories that go beyond the mundane. It's interesting to hear you kind of phrase it that way too, because I, I found it's interesting that you can have people like myself and, and from reading the book yourself as well, who aren't like, I don't believe in, in I'm an atheist. I don't believe, I don't have any religious affiliation, but I can still watch something like the exorcist or whatever. And, and, and accept the rules of, of, and, you know, and I think, it's interesting about, I think horror is one of the few genres that really has that, that quality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you tell a story well, and it's so grounded well enough in a world that you recognize and with people that you identify with, then you can take that step into the supernatural. And King is a master at that. Stephen King is a guy yes. who, whose books and screenplays are all about the humanity of the characters and the stories that we identify with. And that's why when it takes a step into the darkness, you go with it because the suspension of disbelief is one that you take on willingly if the the carpet is laid properly. Yeah. So I was, I, it was interesting. I had, um, uh, William Malone was on the show recently. 
one of my closest friends. Oh, he's so great. He's so great. I love his work, great. but but I didn't know a ton about about well, Bill is what what he got me to call him, but Bill came on and he was so open and available and just, you know, we ended up talking for like two and a half hours. It was this great. Wow. Yeah. It was, you know, he's just a great guy and a great artist. Oh, he's, yeah. And it was funny because I, I had seen, I loved his version of house and high. I thought it was just a blast from top to bottom. You know, that opening scene is just classic. Well, and it's amazing to me. I was saying this to Bill when he was on the show, how Vincent Pricey, him and Jeffrey Rush got that, that whole character. And then, without it feeling like an impression of price or something. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it was it was great. But he and I were talking about the Masters of Horror dinners that you guys all would have and <laughs> how that kind of came about and stuff. So I wanted to ask you, because that was kind of you who initiated that whole thing, I'm assuming, right? Was yeah. the dinners. How did that sort of come to Like, what? where did you get the notion of, you know, it'd be cool to get all the, the big guys together and go for dinner together? Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, you know, we... A lot of us know each other either from film festivals or just running into each other or through the Directors Guild meetings, things like that. And every time, or or conventions, film festivals, uh, every time we'd see each other, it would be, oh man, we all ought to get together and have dinner sometime. And, And I heard it so many times and said it so many times and realized nobody's going to take the initiative to do this unless I do. And so I did. And it took me about a week of trying to work out an evening that would work for the dozen people who made the first. That's day. all. I thought it would have taken longer than that. Well, yeah. it was a smaller amount. We only had a, do- a dozen people at the first dinner. But all oh, of the phone calls and, well, no, I can't do it that day. How about this day? And, and talking to all these people. Finally, it worked out. And we had 12 people in, at a dinner in this place in the San Fernando Valley. And we had such a good time. It was John Carpenter and Wes Craven and Toby Hooper and John Landis and William Malone, uh, Guillermo del Toro, Stuart Gordon. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but everybody- Larry Larry Cohen was at that first one, right? Larry Cohen was there, yeah. yeah. Uh, And it was just, everybody had such a good time that the next time, uh, a month or two later, it took me an hour to put it together. Oh, wow. <laughs> and of course, every time people would say, uh, they would invite friends of theirs, oh, you got to come. And, and people would always talk about it as my dinners. I only organized them. Right. They were our dinners, you know, yeah. everybody paid, everybody threw in their uh, amount. And then I would just put it on a credit card and have a big <laughs> fat wad of cash in my pocket. Yeah. So, <laughs> I love it. came idea. together just yeah. I love it. Bill told a really funny thing. He said that it was Guillermo del Toro who kind of coined the term because there was some people having a birthday party and Guillermo shouted a happy birthday from the masters of horror. And I was like, that's wonderful. (laughs) That's exactly how it happened. And that was a a name we jokingly called ourselves. And then later on, when the idea I had of, of doing the masters of horror series came along, it was the obvious title. And it was a true title because we truly got the surviving masters of horror to, to come on board and, and make movies the way they wanted to. Well, and it's so, you know, it, I mean, it's obviously it's sad, but it's also, you know, I think wonderful that that opportunity was there because some of those guys that even did masters of horror aren't with us anymore. Um, yeah. Some of those great yeah. filmmakers. So, uh, you know, I, it's I think, heartbreaking, you know, yeah. and 
And you become close friends with these people. Toby Hooper and I were incredibly close friends. Wes Craven and Stuart Gordon. I mean, all of these fallen soldiers who were the leaders of the march, you know, the, the, the people who we all emulated and, and were inspired by, you know, and to be able, first of all, for me personally, to be able to produce movies by all of these people. Yeah. I never considered myself a producer, but I was a facilitator. And in this case, to know that I produced movies by John Carpenter and Toby Hooper and Stuart Gordon and Takashi Miike and, you know, just especially the guys who've passed now, like Larry and, and, and Stuart and, and Toby, what important memories to have, not just beautiful memories, but important memories. And they were incredibly personal and emotional relationships. You know, it wasn't just a work situation. And, and the format of that show was also unique in that everybody made the movie in their own style that they wanted to make. There wasn't a group of characters. There wasn't uh, a revolving set that yeah. was constantly used. Everything was self-contained and everything was personal, creatively and, and emotionally. Was, it, was the concept for the show something that came out of at the dinners or something? Are you guys talking about doing something all together? Or was, it, was there any kind of beginnings in that way? Or did it come later and you just knew all these guys so you could call them up? Well, no, we, during the dinners, we didn't always talk about work, but we would talk about, God, it would be so great if we didn't have to fight the studios and yeah. the networks. And most of these guys came out of independent filmmaking where they made their visions on a very low budget, but they were their visions with very little intrusion. And the idea of taking back our independence was a really exciting one. And people would talk about, boy, wouldn't it be great if we could do it ourselves, as I like to put it, if the inmates ran the asylum. Mm -hmm. And so it really, it just took me coming up with a concept and saying to these guys, look, if we could do this, what would you agree to doing a one-hour movie your way um, and do... Uh, commit to that because we'd have to go in if we're offering the masters of horror series, the pitch is these are the guys who would be a part of it. And so, yeah, it came out of the dinners and then the idea of it actually becoming real came out of a concept that I had put together and then the pitch to, to the uh, studios and each of the places we went to, we went to three places with the pitch. All three of them said yes, but anchor Bay said Yes, when can we start? Right. And so we just kicked into gear, as you know. Yeah, I mean, it was such an exciting thing when they were coming out because, you know, these were guys that in a, in a couple instances I, I, I had known or, or met, but but it was this dream team of, of genre filmmakers. I'm trying to remember if I had met John Carpenter and I were introduced through, through Adrian Barbeau and I think it was like 2007. When did you do Masters? It was 2005 through 2007. Okay, so he had, he had either just shot it or or, or was doing. Yeah, he did I, one for each each season. Yeah, he he. I remember him telling me on the phone um, how great it was to to have that kind of freedom when you were shooting because you know uh, John's that's so good to hear. Well, John had been through so much stuff, you know, as you well yeah. know, in in his earlier productions, like particularly something like the thing. I think having a producer who understood 
the protections that a director wants a producer to help put in place. That was probably, I would assume, very meaningful to all those guys. Yeah, well, John had really been through it with the studios, especially the last couple of movies before we did Masters. And so he was very self-mocking and uh, uh, would would say things like, oh, yeah, this this piece of shit's going to be fine. It'll be okay. It'll be fine. <laughs> and then when the, the show came, turned out to be a hit and his episode turned out to be the, uh, probably the favorite one of all 13 of season one, when it came time to do season two, uh, I said, would you come back to do another one? And he said, you know what? Yeah, I had a good time. I would come back. And he did and and did pro-life and, did, and just nailed it and just made something he made john carpenter movies for television yeah with your old pal ron perlman yeah love ron yeah starting with sleepwalkers we've worked together several times yeah yeah it's you know one of the things i think every time i watch the masters of horror i mean everybody i think has that's part of the fun of that format too is people have their favorites and uh, you know, yeah. of course, I have my. I loved uh, Stewart's Black Cat episode. I think it's oh, I, I, that may be my favorite of all of them too. Yeah, I think it's just it's it, to me to see Stewart, who I adore as a filmmaker, he's one of my favorite directors. I think, and and yeah. and not just because he's an amazing, awesome dude, but but he thrived in that format. He just found the perfect story, and he had his his you know, and Jeff his his kind of. They're like such great partners in crime. Those two have worked together so often. And oh, yeah. Just everything about it just sang for me in that format, the length, all those things just worked. Um, Plus, it's a period movie, and the the art direction and everything was so good. And every cast member, all the way down to the one-line cast members, were perfect, and they looked great. And it's just an immaculate piece of filmmaking. Yeah. And, you know, Stuart... I didn't know him that well at the time. I knew him, but didn't know him well. And he's saying, you know, as far as putting the the eye out, you know, just get a real cat and just jab its eye out in it. Are you joking with me or not? You know, I'm a vegan. I was a member of PETA. And like, we're not doing that, (laughs) No, we're not doing that. You have all the control you need. But in this case. So I'm going to guess knowing Stuart, he was just fucking with you entirely like on that particular instance. I'm 90% sure you're yeah. right. <laughs> that's the thing with Stuart that's always funny is that 10% we're like, I, what? No, no, he was kidding. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, I've had a few. I I remember I sent Stuart a script that I was working on. He wanted to read it and I sent it to him. And I had that thing, you know, I think before we started recording, we were joking with this, but that Stuart was like very, the, the sweetest man, but you'd say, what did you think of pretty much anything? And he usually went, ah, it's, it's not great. It's all right. Like, and so I sent him this script and I called him and I said, what did you think? He went, I loved it. And I was like, oh no, he hates it because I'd never, because <laughs> like, you'd never heard him say he loved anything. Yeah. I was like, this has, he's, he's pulling my legs. This is very not Stuart. Um, but it's one of the things I think was really cool with Masters of Horror was how unique everyone seemed to approach their different, you know, little, they're kind of mini movies really more than I think of them as television, frankly. But Yeah, well, they were encouraged to, you know. I would say to Toby, this is a Toby Hooper movie. It's not a Masters of Horror movie. Yeah. And it's not supposed to reflect my taste. It's supposed to reflect the filmmaker. And, you know, your personality is what's going on the screen. And it's... It, it's not my job to try to guide it in any way, except for the ones that I did. 
And I think everybody really, they were a little doubtful that they could have full creative control until they got it. Because right. you don't get that, especially in television. But every one of them got it. Well, Stuart was the first person I talked to about their experience with MASH. I think after he did the first one that he did. And um, I think he was sort of pleasantly surprised. But I think he brought a, a sturdy amount of cynicism about, well, I'm this is what I'm being told, but I'm sure it won't really be like that. And then when it was, exactly. he was so pleased. Yeah, well, that... I could tell with everybody that the, they didn't quite believe that they were going to get the freedom that they got. But it was like, you can do whatever you want if you do it in 10 days for $2 million. Right. And, you know, 10 days in two, 10 days is a lot for a one hour TV show, but it's a one hour TV show, not a 42 minute TV show with yeah. commercials. And, $2 million was much less than the average uh, network TV show at the time. And we had to bring in a new cast with every episode and new sets and new locations and all of that. So it was a tight budget for a union show, but, uh, but one that everybody did their best and they pulled it off. Were there any filmmakers that you would have liked to include or that were going to be in part of it that didn't end up being able to do it? Yeah. Both uh, Wes Craven and George Romero planned on doing episodes and just we could never make the schedule work because once you have a series scheduled, there's no stopping and starting. Right. You shoot for two weeks and then the next director shoots the next two weeks and then the next director shoots the next two weeks. So once you lock into that, you are in that schedule regardless. So um, it, it can be unforgiving and it, it did not allow us. We almost got George to do one. We almost got West. I remember Romero had told me he was going to do one. And then he, yeah, he just, I, I guess, I think it was when he was doing survival of the dead around that time though, or something. He, he just got yeah. busy, I guess, but. Oh, he got a green light. And then uh, the green light on the movie that he was going to do got pulled and ended up not being able to do it uh, because the time, the slots had been filled. But yeah, I, I wrote one that was, sort of a, a Corman Poe movie, but it was a Clive Barker story. And oh, George wow. was originally going to do it. And then Roger Corman was going to do it. And he said, I'm 80 years old. I don't think I want to be shooting in the middle of a rainy graveyard at three in the morning in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, so, but that was one George was going to do. It was a zombie story uh, based on a Clive Barker story. That would have been so cool to have George doing Barker. I mean, that would have been great. Yeah, it was. It, yeah. it would have been. But it turned out really well. Did you end up doing that one? We did with um, John. Um, McNaughton? Was that the uh, one he John did? John McNaughton. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry for the brain fart. John yeah. McNaughton ended up directing it and, and really oh, killed it. Oh, Haeckel's Tales? That was Haeckel's Tale. Yeah. yeah. That was okay. an original story by Clive Barker, not a published story. I think... Later, it was published as a short story, but I adapted Barker's story. I wrote the script as in the second season, my episode was Valerie on the Stairs, also based on an original screen story by Clive. With Tony Todd. With Tony Todd, yeah. yes. Yeah, Tony's wonderful. <laughs> He's great. Yeah, yeah Tony was attached to do a movie I directed, and he went and got fitted for the wardrobe and everything, and then the day before, he 
found out from the production design that he they weren't going to finish in time when I get this call from Tony. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, ouch. Yeah, it sucked. I had to like, I we had just taken out of the script. There wasn't time to recast. We needed a Tony actor and there's not a ton of those and we didn't have time to find there's someone not, like that. Yeah, there's so, not a lot at all. No. Um, the same thing happened actually with, uh, we had Lance Henriksen for a part. And, um, wow. And Lance was, he his he wasn't feeling well. He, he was pretty sick. and But we managed to recast and we got um, William Sadler to do that. And he was, did a great Wow, job. he's great. Yeah, he's he great. fantastic. Um. With Masters, you know, Masters ended after two seasons, and then you went and did Fear Itself, which has some great stuff in it, particularly Larry Fessenden's episode, which I think is a masterpiece. Um, Larry's is really good, and Stewart's is really good. Stewart's is fantastic. But that one feels very, there's a vibe about it's so different from Masters. And I know from reading the book and just different things I've gleaned that that didn't, go the way that I think you wanted it to? What kind of went astray with Fear Itself after Masters wrapped up? Well, what happened was um, after two seasons on Showtime, Anchor Bay was sold, they sold the show to uh, Lionsgate. Lionsgate said, we want more money. So they asked Showtime, Showtime's license fee was only 10% of the budget for each show. Okay. So Lionsgate said to Showtime, we want double. Oh, wow. Showtime said, Showtime said, fuck you. Yeah. And then they said, well, let's do it for network TV. Let's sell it to NBC. And I said, the whole concept of this show is filmmakers without the intrusion of ideas and guidance by network. network broadcast standards, by a studio not getting notes from all these people. And so I said, they sold it to NBC. Uh, I gave it the name Fear Itself. Uh, and I said, look, I can't in good conscience do this. Um, that's not what it's about. But Stuart and a couple of the other directors said, look, there was Twilight Zone, there was Outer Limits. We can do good stuff with commercial TV, even under those auspices, because things have been opening up a little bit even in broadcast television. So I agreed to do it. We put everything together. We had the first 13, first draft of all 13 shows written before the, the writer's strike hit in 2007. So that hit on, it was Halloween day. And then from then on, there's no more writing allowed, but they hired non-union writers to come in and do all the writing that was necessary from then on. And I said, look, I can't do that. I'm a proud member of the Writers Guild. There's a reason for this strike. I'm not going to break it. And then the other executive producers who were my managers at the time, um, they said, oh, you can just give notes. And it's like, well, I'm not going to give notes to writers to do, re to non-union writers to rewrite it. And with all of that, I really, they were basically just chopping the nuts off of my baby. Yeah. You know, they basically kidnapped my baby and raped it. Yeah. And moved forward and I left the show. It was the most heartbreaking thing of my career. I had to say, this is not what we set out to do. This is not the show we, we intended to make. And these people who were my producers are the same people who also did 
without ever asking me, sold Masters of Science Fiction to ABC mm. and made that without my involvement. And so... Assholes. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. there were people that I don't have any good feelings about I to bet. this day. But um, Masters of Horror was a hit. Masters of Science Fiction and Fear Itself both failed miserably and had episodes that weren't even run because it was they were so unsuccessful. So there's a little bit of uh, schadenfreude in there that, yeah. uh, that I still well, feel. You know, it's funny. I never saw Masters of Science Fiction, but I saw Fear Itself. Nobody else did either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nobody saw it. Um, I think I, I, I think Anchor Bay put out the DVD, and I remember that I think they gave me they one, did. and I never even watched it. Um, but Fear itself, aside from, I think you know, as we said, Larry Fessenden and Stewart both did great work, and I don't fault the filmmakers, but it just the whole no, thing no. felt pretty castrated to me after Masters of Horror, which felt very free and uh, not. Well, that's compromised. exactly what it was. Your 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 assessment of it is a hundred percent on target. It was castrated. And that whole point was the freedom of expression that these filmmakers would have. And they had commercial breaks and they had censorship and they had, you know, input notes from network and studio. And it was just an untenable situation as far as I was concerned. Like, I think it's interesting to see, you know, what Larry and and Stuart did because I, I've talked to like Larry was on the show and we talked about his episode because I, I thought it was Larry managed to navigate through those waters and still come up with a great piece uh, helped by an amazing yeah. performance by Doug Jones, who's always so brilliant. Um, always great. Always, yeah. yeah. And I asked Larry, I said, how did you kind of navigate that? And he said, well, I just, you know, I, I tried to figure out how I would make this thing without being able to show all the gore and all that stuff. And I said, is that the way you would have done it though? If you had had, your druthers like and he was like no <laughs> like yeah exactly <laughs> exactly it's not the filmmaker's vision it's the collaborative vision that rarely is uh, is pure yeah yeah i mean it's you know it's a bummer too because i look at it now and i'm like you could do a masters of horror again that would be different filmmakers of course as we said some of them have gone or some of them might not want to you know some of them are sort of semi-retired but if you were to do a new season of Masters of Horror now, who would be some of the new faces we'd see in that lineup if you had your choosing? Well, I'd love to really mix it up as far as uh, gender and ethnicity and all of that because there are so many talented people. I'd love to get a Kayla Cooper to come in and write one. I'd love to get James Wan to direct. I would love to get um, Rob Savage. I'd love to get, you know, just... Um, um, uh, the Babadook, what's uh, the director's oh, name? Oh, yeah, um, she's great. To, uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> normally these are at the tip of my fingers, but... You probably uh, interviewed not, them all on your show. <laughs> well, not her. Jennifer Kent. Yes, Jennifer that's, Kent. Right. that's right. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's so many really great, talented people with vision that have proven themselves over and over again, probably Andy Machete. Yeah. Um, some really exceptional people, but I would still love to bring in some of the people who the originals were there. Yeah. yeah. Some of the guys who were there from the seventies, you know, I'd love to get Steven, uh, I'd love to get uh, William Friedkin to do yeah. one. I'd love to get Steven Spielberg to do one. They never would, but <laughs> you know, Steven was my first boss when as a screenwriter. 
So um, we have a, a long history there, but I doubt that I could get him to do one. But well, I don't want to, I, rather than mourn the loss of Masters of Horror, I'd rather celebrate the 26 episodes we yeah. did. And I'd love to see how, him get- How rare was that? Oh, it yeah. was amazing. And I think it's it's funny. I remember, um, uh, I think it was Chris Alexander when I were talking, he was on the show and I we were talking about the notion of sort of, you know, people who say, well, you know, the book was so much better. And 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 he was telling right. me, I can't remember, I think it was um, who the author was. It might have, it was, it was someone like Ray Bradbury or someone like that, an iconic author who was asked that. And he went, well, no, the books are all still right there. Like That's someone Stephen making, King. Was it Stephen King? That's and I, Stephen King. I love that idea that that um, people get sometimes of just sort of like, well, that's so, you can't touch that thing. And that's so, you know, and, and in your career, you've seen that with, I'm guessing something like The Shining, you must have had a ton of people going, you can't do that. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I always think it's funny when you think of, what's more incumbent upon a genre filmmaker than when everybody goes, you can't do that to go. Yes, I fucking can. Um, exactly. You know what I mean? That's your yeah. job to push those boundaries. And I think masters of horror did that. Every episode was going, we're going to do this the way we want to do it with a real budget. And with, you know, and, and the result is something like, I don't know, there's nothing else like it. Yeah. It was something really special and it felt like it at the time, you know, because I would watch these filmmakers and, and I was one of them and, and, just see them feel the freedom that they hadn't felt since their very beginnings. Just the feeling, I, I could see them all really on fire and feeling in ways that they hadn't felt in a long time because of having worked in such a corporate world for so long. You know, you dream when you're doing your first independent movies of being able to have the luxury of the budgets and a big studio marketing campaign behind you but it comes with so much compromise. Yes. And often the compromise is worth it. But to return to your roots and be able to be scrappy again and rely on ingenuity rather than budget was really something genuinely pleasing for, for all of these guys. Well, and I think horror filmmakers, maybe more so than any other genre of film, almost all started out making scrappy little movies and you, you know, yeah. that's that's the the coming of past the rite of passage for a horror movie director is you start with some, you know, slasher film or limited location movie or something, you know. Yeah. Well, you don't need you don't need movie stars to make a successful horror film. Exactly. You know, the, the filmmaker is the movie star in this case. Yeah. And it, it, it's funny to look at from the standpoint of that sort of, you know, approach that a genre director can take that I think other filmmakers, you know, you can't I think it's really tough to do a comedy or a drama without stars and, 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 yeah. you know, it, it, they almost never succeed, uh, especially comedies. Um, Oh yeah. I mean, comedies, unless there's brilliant little independent comedies, you know, like bodies, bodies, bodies was fantastic. an A 24 movie. I love that movie. And just brilliant. Yeah. Just brilliant. And the biggest, the best twist of any movie that year. Uh, in the ending, just we shan't so spoil it here, but but I bet you a lot no, of the listeners no. have, have seen that film, or if they haven't, yeah. go see it. <clears throat> yeah, it, it's great. And there's only one person you've heard of in that movie, yeah. and that's Pete Davidson. Yeah, well, Lee Pace had a good little bit in that, but but uh, well, yeah, you've got that too. Yeah. But but you know, you'll get independent movies that are genuinely funny, um, that don't rely on movie stars, but by the time you're at the studio level. 
you need the movie stars and you can rely on comedy stars because they do it well and they're familiar and they bring people out. It's, you know, I I don't know what your experience with this has been, but I've talked to quite a few different genre directors and there seems to be a general opinion though, that like, if you don't work in horror, you're not a horror fan. You get asked a lot like, Oh, is it really like, is everybody really intense? There's people getting killed. It's monsters. And, and everyone I know that, that works within the genre will be happy to explain probably the most fun you'll have on a set is when you're throwing fake body parts and blood and making ghosts yeah. and all this stuff. Right. Um, comedies and their sets are the always the most miserable people. sets that I was ever on. They were always, yeah. I can't imagine how difficult it must be to shoot different angles and multiple takes and try and keep something funny I because know. comedy deflates really quickly, you know, yeah. through repetition, you can, improve performances and all, and you need to do it when you're making a movie, but God, how painful that must be to try and feel like laughing every time you go through the same. That's a really interesting way of putting it too. I've never really thought of it in that way of like that thing that gives, I mean, comedy is so specific in the way that it, that it works or doesn't work. And you know what you capture in one take you might never be able to replicate, you know, unless you have someone yeah. like a Robin Williams who can probably give you that. But, but, uh, right. But in that, in the case of Robin Williams and other brilliant, uh, people who work off book really well, it might be different in every single take and you might get genius in every one. And then trying to make it match up is, is yeah. the editor's yeah. dilemma. Yeah, that's but, true. <laughs> but worth it. Yeah. I'm curious, like when you were a youngster, and I know a bit about this from in your book, but I wanted to talk to you about it when I had you on here was I, I, I was noticing something I noticed in a lot of genre filmmakers when they're at a young age in that um, there's usually some aspect of their childhood where they're what I describe the island of misfit toys, you know, where, where they feel a little different than the other kids around them, or they have interests that are a little different than the other kids. And, you know, or, or they have, you know, they were raised by, you know, a single parent or there's some component of that. They're rarely the kids who had, you know, they were a jock or something like it's just never seems to go that way. No, they were never the popular kids. Certainly I wasn't. Right. I was not a football player. I was, you know, my older brother, was popular and he did all the sports and all of that stuff. And I was a a mind hopelessly trapped in a body. I was reading Ray Bradbury books. I was watching universal horror movies. Nobody I knew did that. I did not have close friends until high school and not a whole lot of them. Um, uh, My parents split up when I was 12, 13 years old. Uh, I was very much uh, a a latchkey kid, even though there were four kids in my family and then later on three more when my mother remarried. uh, We were not a closely knit family. We all had very different personalities. And I was very much a loner and an odd kid and was very much interested in, in the dark side. So, you know, I was never a popular kid until I was 18 years old and became the lead singer in a rock band that became very popular in San Diego. And even then and, you were a decidedly different rock band musician because you didn't yes. have a pot or drink or do any of those things. Yeah, everybody else in the band did. But to this day, I've never smoked a joint. I've never had an alcoholic beverage. I did Not one? Cigarettes. You've never had a single alcoholic beverage? I've tasted, but I've never had a drink. Not right. in my life. You're so, like, and, like it. and it's something for me. It's, it's not from a judgmental place about no. anybody else. 
but it's entirely just choice I've made for myself. Yeah, just is in your cup of tea. Um, but I was thinking it's it's you know like well what was the, what would, would you say was the first film you remember seeing that had the impact on you of really scaring you, not where it was fun or where it was cambered, like it was really terrifying. Our family went in a in a station wagon to the drive-in in Van Nuys to see Psycho. And horror movies were thought to be for kids at the time, even though, you know, it, this was 1960. So I was eight years old. And uh, that meant my, I had a brother who was two and a half years older, another brother who was a year and a half younger, and a sister who was a year younger than him. So really not the most appropriate thing for us to see at that age. <laughs> But we loved it. Yeah. You know, even the non-horror-loving members of my family, which was everybody but me, loved that movie. And that really had an impact. Never in a million years would have imagined that 30 years later, I would direct the prequel sequel, Psycho 4. But that movie had the biggest impact uh, I can remember of any scary movie. Mine was a King and, movie. It was uh, Pet Cemetery. Oh, good. Scared yeah. the Fuck out of me, my God. <laughs> I was, Excellent. I think I was such eight, a good book. Oh, it's such, it's my, it's my favorite King book. I've read it so many times because I think it just yeah. has such a primal kind of classic type of scary to it. The monkey's paw gone dark, dark, dark. Like it's just dark, such a, dark. And, and it's so deeply emotional. It is. You know, there's so much pain, you know, when, when the little boy gets hit, is it Gage, Gage Creed? Gage, yeah. 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 Which King named the King had in your movie, in The Shining. Yeah, in The Shining. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when when he's killed in the book, just like in Cujo, when the little boy dies in the book, you keep turning pages, waiting for it to be a dream. The I dream know. is over, or somebody's worst fear being illustrated. But when it it's finite. And real, it's so unbelieving, unbelievably heartbreaking. It's one of those Just, great horror stories, too, that I think that, you know, to me, the testament, this is such a, a Stephen King, one of the great things about Stephen King that I don't hear people acknowledge enough about his work, but is that as you read Pet Cemetery and you're saying, well, you know, why then don't do that? Don't bury the bodies. Or, you know, they're, what are you doing? But you're also going, but I would do the exact same thing. You're, it, you're the exactly. compulsions that those characters are going through. You feel if I could have my kid back in any you way, you would fucking do it. Yeah, 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 you would. And it's aching, and you're you're going, you're yelling at your book or at your screen, don't do it. And you're also going, and I would do the exact same thing. And that's sort of part yeah. of the brilliance <laughs> of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, you know, and like you look at sort of some of some of your first features, Critters too, and and Psycho Four, and and I was just thinking too because I went back and watched Psycho Four to prepare to ch chat with you today. I think all the cycle sequels are very different and all good. It's interesting to yeah. me that they're not quite as talked about as much as some other horror franchises. I mean, I do you think that's just the shadow of the original being so mighty that it's tough to get out from under that a bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the worst, the most memorable line from a bad review of something of mine was the critic said, Director Garris is to Hitchcock what Peoria is to Paris. <laughs> and it's a good one. Yeah, it's great, and but it's, I mean, it sucks for you as that. reading it, I guess, yeah. but it's a good line. <laughs> but it's the same thing with doing 
The Shining, after Kubrick had made an iconic film that when it came out was not liked. It was very successful, but critically panned almost 100%. And the reason we did it was because King wrote the book, never liked the Kubrick film. And when The Stand was so successful, ABC said to him, what do you want to do next? He said, I'd like to do a version of The Shining that is my book. the story I was trying to tell. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, in the case of Psycho, it's so specific. There's, there's not like a Freddy Krueger character. I mean, there's only so far you can take it. And, you know, that was proven by the Bates Motel series, you know, for a while. They went out of their way to not make it psycho. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, soon it became about drug dealing in high school and, and stuff like that. And it was like... What does that have to do with Nothing. what Hitchcock did originally? I mean, it was. I My, thought that show was buoyed by great performances by its two leads. Yeah, yeah. But but the more it went on, the more I was like, where they're so far away from Bates Motel and Psycho at this at this point. Yeah, I mean, where is this going and why? It, it, uh, I really liked the first season and then just got confused as to where it was going. Mm-hmm. But in the case of Psycho Four. Tony Perkins, who was very challenging during the course of making it because he wanted to direct it because he had directed Psycho 3, which was unsuccessful critically and commercially. And here the director of Critters 2 is going to direct it after he's worked with every great director there ever was, from from Hitchcock to Orson Welles to William Wyler and all that. So, But when it was done and we finally screened it for him, he, he went it. on and on about yeah, how yeah. it was his favorite of all of the sequels. And and uh, Hilton Green, who was the executive producer, he was Hitchcock's first AD on the original Psycho. And of course, ours was also written by Joseph Stefano, who wrote the original. And Hilton said, Hitch would have loved this. Well, and think, it's one of the proudest, proudest moments of my life. Yeah. It's such a, I, I mean, to me, what really, what's so good about that film you know, and, and I'd seen it a few times in the past, but I'd seen it for a while. Is Henry Thomas and Olivia Hussey's work in it is impeccable. They're so great, They're so great. I, and Henry I Thomas to me is always great. He's such a stand-up actor. He's fantastic, and he's great. I've worked with him several times, and he's also a really good human being, as is Olivia. Um, but just great people to work with. <clears throat> so committed and. You know, that was a role that's tough to step into, talking about being a director stepping into Hitchcock's shoes, him stepping into Tony Perkins' shoes. When Perkins is in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And Perkins loved him in it. It'd be like it'd be like Weber doing the shining if Nicholson had been playing the older version of him. Right. Yeah. 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 It's intense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know I've read that that Steven Weber wasn't that daunted by Nicholson's performance because he just saw it as being this completely other thing. Was was well, Henry exactly Thomas was Henry Thomas about the, that way at all with with Perkins's performance? Did he go well? I'm you know Perkins is involved in this, so I'm kind of guessing his blessings there, and he just went for it. Or was he nervous about that component? Well, if he was, he didn't express it. Henry okay. was a very quiet eighteen year old uh, when we made that, but. He was so committed to it. He was really great. And I think he enjoyed the fact that Tony was around. Um, and, and Tony loved Henry in the movie. Um, but 
it's like, you know, for Weber, for Henry, it's the same thing as me stepping into the Hitchcock or Kubrick shoes as them stepping into the Perkins and uh, and Nicholson shoes. Yeah. So it's it's you have to put yourself in a place of we're making something entirely self-contained that is not referencing the others. You know, in the case of Psycho, you're directly referencing. But, uh, you know, that's a different situation. But it's still, then you're paying homage to something that's great and was great the first time out. In the case of The Shining, a filmmaker had a different take to the novelist's novel. And the novelist himself was in a position of power being able to have a second run at it that would more closely approximate the story he wanted to tell. Like when you were first talking to Stephen King about doing The Shining, did, you know, I know Stephen King didn't like the film because it was so dramatically differentiated from, from what his story was. But did you ever get a sense that was Stephen King not able to see the things about The Shining that did work? Like, I mean, it's a beautifully made movie. Did Stephen ever well, talk think about he, those aspects? Yeah, he would talk about the construction of it and, and the cinematic qualities of it. And he always said he thought that Kubrick was a genius. Right. But th- the personalities of Kubrick, the cinematic or literary personalities of Kubrick and King could not be more opposite. For sure. I like to say that Kubrick is, is chilly. Kubrick is cold. And King is warm. Kubrick is very much about the technique and the technology of telling a story and making a film. And King is all about the humanity the of people. it and the heart yep. of it and yep. the people. So they're very odd couple, a very, very bad match, you know, and I can appreciate The Shining now as a great Kubrick film, but I'd read the book first. And so when I saw it, when it came out, it was a disappointment to me mm-hmm. as it was with most people who'd read the book first. But it's become iconic, and there's a reason for that. It's a very powerful, excellent Stanley Kubrick film. Mm-hmm. It's just not the it's best. This doesn't feel much of, like a Stephen King film, is the thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a scary movie, but in a with a filmmaker who intentionally broke all of the rules mm-hmm. of what makes for good scares. And it, I mean, you've worked on Steve. How many Stephen King films have you done? What is it? I can't even keep track. I know, neither can I. Eight or nine. I had to count somewhere, but I was like looking at my notes for it. Um, The first one, I I guess, was Sleepwalkers, right? Yeah, that was the very first. I'm curious for you, having worked on so many Stephen King projects and with Stephen King, what it is you think it is about King's work? And I think I might know the answer based on what you just said, but I want to get your words on it. (laughs) Um, About King's work that connects so well with you and and your sensibilities as a filmmaker. Well, we had a very similar upbringing. You know, we both came from a broken home raised by a single mom at a certain point in our lives. And, you know, he's a few years older than me, but we still had a lot of the same cultural touchstones with EC comics weren't being published anymore by the time I was old enough to be reading comics. But I knew about them and there would be reprints and I'd find them. I watched The Twilight Zone religiously as Stephen King did. We both read Ray Bradbury and Richard Matheson, and we both had uh, less than comfortable upbringings. You know, we were very, very blue collar raised. And so we share a lot of that, but it's, I think, the loner aspects and, and the sharing of humanity, 
the the being in touch with with people that is so important to King's work that I would like to believe as as an important place in in the work that I do as it does in King's that finding what is the heart of it is almost always about the person, not about the story. Without, you know, sort of trying to be too grandizing, but I have to tell you, when I saw The Stand for the first time, which came out in, what, 94? 94, yeah. So I was 12. I was (laughs) so obsessed with that miniseries because it, to me, it seemed impossible to make. I was like, how did this happen? How did this get made? How is it so good? And I had read the book. How does it work? So like, so I, that was one of the first pieces of film or television that I decided I needed to figure out how it was done. So I thought Uh, that was something I had to share with you was, you know, and I now I've had a career as a filmmaker, but I always, whenever I visit the stand, I have these warm feelings because I remember thinking what an achievement, you know, and having read it, it, it to me, it's still to this day. I think it's incredible what you did to, not just capture King's story, but, and people who, who don't, who aren't filmmakers, this might seem a little more outside the book, but I know how freaking hard it must have been to make that piece. Like it's, there's so Every many moving day was parts. Impossible. Yeah. Every day was impossible, but yeah. you know, we had a great script and that's the foundation of it. And King wrote a really great script, but we also, you know, it's, it's the most cinematic thing I've ever done. And those days, television was not very cinematic, but yeah. I didn't watch TV. I loved movies. And so it <clears throat> it's television because of the miniseries format and the commercial breaks and all that. But I did everything I could to pull every tool out of the toolbox in, in making a movie that was an epic. I'd never made anything of a large scope before that. And here I am with a 460 page script that we shot in six States and, you know, a massive cast. Yeah. 126 speaking parts. And it just, everything about it was difficult every day. It was not fun to make, but it was really rewarding. And to be surrounded by this cast and crew was just spectacular. And we knew we were doing something special. And, and I looked at it again about a year ago and it was kind of, I couldn't believe what we pulled off under the circumstances because every day the weather, every day the weather was wrong. Every day there was something physically demanding. We were outside and in the, in the elements. And well, and I think I've, you know, some of the things I've shot with much smaller casts and it's like, you know, when you're juggling that many personalities, it can be a challenge. And the amount of personalities you would have had on this, you know, it must, you must've been exhausted by the time you finished making the stand. I was so exhausted. And the, the weird thing about the way it was scheduled, it was 20 weeks of shooting. The first 13 were five day, were five day weeks. And the last seven were six day weeks. Brutal. Oh my and God. they were just brutal. And as you know, as a filmmaker, you start shooting in the morning on Monday. And every day gains at least an hour because you have a 12-hour shoot day plus a lunch break. So every day starts an hour later. That's if you don't go overtime, which you almost always have to. So by the time you're shooting on Friday, you're starting at the very earliest in the afternoon and maybe even at nighttime and do overnight. And then you start again at 7 a.m. on Monday morning. So it's really, really 
a demanding job. And that shoot in particular for a hundred days of shooting was massive. You know, I think one of the things that works so well for me about the stand is, you know, it has this big epic, uh, both in the storytelling and, and in, in the scope of the production quality to it. But it has some decidedly kind of independent movie qualities in the some of the choices that the actors got to make and little moments that like one of the things I remember when I went back and watched it recently, and I don't know that I would have been aware of this when I was like 12 when I saw it, but <laughs> was horror for me one of the things that always kind of miffed me about horror movies growing up was you know as a gay person how very heterosexual they got especially in the 80s yeah. it was all topless yeah. women sexualized women oversexed women da, 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 da. like it was always that and there was yeah. these moments in the stand where we got there's some very good looking guys in that movie where they take their shirt <laughs> off and they're raking and i was like some equal opportunity filmmaking finally thank you mickey <laughs> that's um, right there was no female toplessness in That's the stand. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so a nod from a 12 year old gay kid who finally was like Rob Lowe with no shirt on in a horror movie. Excellent. Um, <laughs> but I think it's, you know, one of the fun things to see in horror as it's gone on over, you know, the last few decades is the way it's, I think, become more and more progressive and that we're seeing you know, everybody's getting to play now. And I think that's something. Absolutely. And I, I think it's incredibly important and, and, and I think different perspectives are really important to have from the creators as well, you know. Um, but depicting life as life is, rather than than you're making it up. Yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of filmmakers make movies based on movies rather than movies based on life. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting. I know in the in in Abby's book she talks about how riding the bullet was was a a film that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that you've described as being your most personal film. By far. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I can feel it in the movie, but I'm curious in your words, what it is about that story, both King's story, but then, you know, as a, as a filmmaker turning it into a movie that was so deeply personal for you. <clears throat> well, I'd lost my brother and I'd lost my dad. I, I lost a brother to AIDS in, in 92 and then I lost another brother later on, and I'd lost my dad later, uh, not long after, lost my mother. And it just hit me so hard when I read the story, because the, the movie is, the story was 30 pages long, and that's about a third to half of the movie. And so it was reinventing it. I set it in a different date, 30 years earlier, at a time that was a time of personal growth for me. Uh, it was high school time, but it's set in a college, in a university. Um, making that choice between life and death, and I made made the lead actor um, an artist who's obsessed with death because I was a filmmaker making movies about death and dying and horror. And just the idea of of that life and death choice that you're making about your parent, about your mother, the the person who brought you up, just felt incredibly personal to me at a very vulnerable time. And when I first wrote the script on spec, my agent said, oh, we're going to make a great deal. We're going to sell this. We're going to get a bidding war with all the studios. Never happened. And we ended up doing it independently for Originally, the budget they gave me was twice what the budget ended up being. Uh, the movie was made for, you know, for an indie, it's not a bad budget. It's $5 million. But 
it's also a million dollars to Stephen King. It's also getting right. a great cast together, shooting on location and all that. And then we never got distribution. So it it played in three cities wide with no TV advertising. They only advertised on the internet because it was based on an internet story, a, an ebook that had that was the first ebook ever published by a major author. So they said trying to convince us it was a good idea and not because they didn't want to spend money, we'll just advertise on the internet because that's where the book was published. So nobody nobody saw the movie. Nobody saw it. And it it was heartbreaking because it was the most personal thing. There's a lot of my life um, reflected in that and a lot of my emotions reflected in that. You know what I think and, I love about the story, but but I love more so about your 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 version, the film of it is the story is wonderful, but as you said, it's a very compact bit of storytelling from from King. Yeah, I think it's a ghost. Yeah, and the movie you made takes that as a springboard and finds all these wonderful themes that, to me, you know, and this is I think a testament to how well made that movie is. You made a very, it's a very personal story for you, but when I watched it, if if somehow felt personal to me because I could identify so much with that main character and that that time in your life and those feelings. And for me, it has more to do with coming out and a period of angst, or, but it's all in there. And if you can bring that as an audience member, to me, that's always a much more inclusive kind of, of filmmaking and storytelling than, you know, when a filmmaker makes something that's sort of just for them, that's sort of right. restrictive. Um but, yeah, but, I, but uh, you know, if you make something that's truly personal, um, it's universal. I think people feel emotions. You know, if you're making something to just masturbate, that's something different. You know, you make yes. a, a an art house movie that becomes a big hit, and then your next movie is going to be, well, everybody told me I'm a genius, so I guess I am. So here's my next three-hour movie <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> uh, about my thoughts. You know, but if you make something personal from your own personal experience, from your own personal emotions, and plumb those emotions, I think an audience is going to share that. They didn't in the case of writing the bullet, unfortunately. But when people discover it, you know, there, I often hear from people who said, you know, I never heard of this movie, and I saw it on Tubi or something, and... I had no idea it existed. And, you know, I lost my mom recently and it really resonated with me. Those are the things that that you tell stories for. That's the reason you tell stories is to share feelings and emotions and experiences. Well, I think, you know, this is a slightly maybe overused term, but but I mean it sincerely. I think there's an authenticity to the to the story that you're telling or or how it applies for you in in that in the case of this film. It feels, you know, in the way that it's personal feels like why we tell stories and isn't it all masturbatory. It's not like, look how, you know, like you said, that sort of look out, look what I can do with a camera kind of stuff. I mean. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of movies and movie makers that that's what they're about is showing what they can do. Sometimes they meet, for yeah. example, everything, everywhere, all at once is a fucking fantastic movie in every regard. Yes. It uses all of the tools of cinema in the most brilliant imaginative ways to tell a truly emotional story that I mean you get choked up by the end of that I movie love that several film. times. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. it's a masterpiece and I think it is that perfect blend of cinematic wow 
and emotional storytelling. I, I, it's funny. I'm just, it's so funny that you would describe it that way. Cause I, I asked people who, who didn't see it, Sydney, what did you think? And I said, it's everything you love about cinema in one movie. Like, yeah, I could not agree more. Yeah. I mean, and, and I was so happy to see Jamie Lee get an Oscar for it. What a proud moment for oh. every horror fan. Our queen. Yeah. Being, no kidding. You know, I mean? it's such a great thing. Um, and well, she's, she's a wonderful human. Oh, I, I, you know, I listened to, you did a, a chat with her when she did the last Halloween, right? Was that when it happened? Yeah. It was so yeah. fun to hear you guys just getting a chance to sit down and chat. Um, yeah, she's a, she's amazing human being. And I love the, this sort of, um, charitable work and just how important being part of, you know, just, she's so, I think for me too, as a gay person, she does so much for the LGBTQ community and support and Absolutely. She's such a great advocate for so many people. Yeah, um, she's got a huge heart. And yeah. It, and you've known wonderful. her a long time, right? You you go back with her. A long time. Yeah. Uh, I was her publicist back in 1982. Yeah. Wow. I read in Abby's Maybe book more. that you almost ended up, she almost ended up being in a film you were directing, right? I was going to make a, an independent romantic comedy based on a short that I'd done. And she was going to have a small part in it. And the date got closer and closer and closer and never, never worked out. And we had to cancel the project and we were two weeks from shooting and, and we weren't able to, to lock the uh, schedules in. So it just fell apart, which is in the big picture, probably a good thing because <laughs> I may not have uh, found my niche. You know, uh, it may have been a, a disastrous romantic comedy, independent film that flopped and, Nobody would want to hire me to do another romantic comedy. And, you know, the place I feel most comfortable is in the dark genre. Well, it's interesting, you know, kind of looking at this stage in your life and in your career, to me, it was, you know, part of the fun of reading the book and going back to watch quite a few of your films, just, you know, in excitement to, to sit down and chat with you today was to see, you know, one, you've been making genre films now for quite some time, but but there is also this wonderful kind of through line in your work to me that, that, you know, uh, is fun to see when you sit down and watch a filmmaker's work in that way, where you're watching, you know, a few decades of their, of their projects. And, you know, you, you start with something like sleepwalkers, which I love. And I think is a wonderfully wacky, crazy movie. Um, you know, I, you. at a very young age, um, Alice, is it Krieg or Krieg? I've heard it pronounced two different ways. I say Krieger, which would be technically how it is, but I think most people say Krieg. Okay. I, as a kid who knew they were gay, being like, she's so sexy and captivating and amazing. And <laughs> like, what a lady. She's so wonderful. Um, she's terrific and really brilliant. Oh, yeah. There's something oh, to me, even, you know, when I see her in films now, there's just like this ethereal, supernatural quality about her as a performer. Yeah. Well, seeing her in ghost story is what led me to cast her in, in sleepwalkers. Yeah. It's and one the of those whole feline feline quality of her yeah. is really fantastic. Um, yeah. Okay. My last, I guess my last question for you would be if you were to do another King book at this stage in your life and in your career, you know, which one you'd want to do anyone you had your druthers and he picked. It's hard to say. I mean, Revival is a terrific one, but there have been a couple of people attached to it over and over. I, I really wanted to do Gerald's Game, and it broke my heart that I couldn't, because that's one I really knew what I was going to do with. But it was in the hands of Mike Flanagan, so that was okay. He did yes. a great job of it. If anybody's going to do that book other than me, let it be Mike. So, um, you know, the amazing thing is, 
I've actually adapted all of my favorite, three of my favorite King books. You know, The Stand, The Shining, and Bag of Bones. Holy shit. You know, that's that's pretty phenomenal. I don't want to be greedier than that. <laughs> Let some other filmmakers tackle King books. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm happy to see that happen and, you know, to get people like Rob Savage to join the Stephen King Directors Club. And Flanagan, as you mentioned, has done such a great job with so much. It's really He's good. so great. I just saw him two days ago and I, I just love the guy. Well, what do you have anything on, coming up on the horizon, Mick? Any new projects you're working on or anything that's just well, the writer's guild strike is standing in the way of a lot. I've, I've actually got a series that I've written the pilot and outlined, and we've gotten a couple of uh, major name actors attached to it um, that we were ready to pitch. And now we can't pitch because of the DJ, the WGA strike, but that is based on a Stephen King story. Uh, so that may be the first King thing since Bag of Bones in 2011. And Clive Barker and I are working on a couple of projects together, but again, we are stalled by the strike. Yeah. And another another f- script that I wrote 30 years ago and dusted off and started from page one and completely rewrote it that has been optioned that I'm really excited about. So in my dotage, I'm still <laughs> walking the pavement. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a, a, a understood by every horror fan at this point, you know, and I go to a lot of conventions and talk to people stuff that you're the great ambassador of horror. So for, so thank you for taking on that mantle and doing such a great job. with uh, it. it was never intentional. <laughs> well, you've done it. You've done us all very proud. And, and uh, I can't wait to see the next film because it's been a bit, I feel like it's time Get back to work, Mick. We want a new movie. For All you. right. I, I'm ready. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mick. I really appreciate this. Great to talk with you, Kevin. Take care. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and co-produced by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously produced by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at, all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Post, comment, share, like. But don't forget, that good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>